everyone. Just wanted to jump in before the episode starts and let you know we have a great interview in store for you with Dr. Aaron McDonald. And we had a little conversation after the mic stopped rolling to the point where I wanted the mics to start rolling again, where we discuss her journey becoming a sci-fi consultant. And instead of just tacking that into the episode, since it felt like it would be too long, I thought it'd be way better if we put it on her website. I'll make sure to have a link in the show notes. Also wanted to mention... Yes, unfortunately, when you're recording on the go, things go wrong, and my audio came out way scratchier than I'd like it to be, and I'll make sure to do my best to make sure this never happens again. But Dr. Aaron's audio came out completely pristine, so the overall interview is totally listenable, and I really hope you all enjoy it, and after you've listened to this, you'll go over to her website, erinpmcdonald.com, and check out everything that she's been working on in addition to just being an incredible sci-fi consultant. And with that in mind, let's start the episode. Hello and welcome to Sweating the Small Stuff, a show where we sweat over the details that make our world richer. I'm your personal brain trainer, Cam Buzar-Jamari, and today I am joined by the, I believe on your website you refer to yourself as the Tattooed Gravity Queen? <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, it's a moniker that's stuck, and I love it. Yes, I'm talking to the sci-fi consultant and astrophysicist, Dr. Aaron McDonald. Um, Aaron, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself a little? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, so on my website, I kind of talk that I'm a rocket scientist by day and a warp drive expert by night. And <laughs> I wear I wear many, many hats. Uh, so sometimes it's hard to condense in just one elevator pitch. But uh, my background is in astrophysics. Uh, after I left academia, I started getting more into science communication and education. And I started speaking at sci-fi conventions, talking about the science behind science fiction. Um, and from that, I started to meet a lot of creators and writers and started doing more consulting to try to help them get the science as right as possible. Um, so I do that. I continue all my science communication stuff. Um, I'm based in L.A., my most recent project that I did uh, that I can talk about is called Orbital Redux. Um, it aired on Project Alpha with Yuri Lowenthal, and it was a really, really awesome project that I got to work on. So, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and honestly, like my favorite thing about having you on the show is we are sweating the small stuff, and you, in a very literal sense, get paid to sweat the small stuff, or at least help <laughs> yeah. other people sweat the small stuff about the content and media that we hold most dear to ourselves. Actually, um. So you mentioned orbital redux. I was hoping maybe we could just kind of start with like a little more on what mm -hmm. exactly a sci-fi consultant does. And maybe if you want to speak to any of the specifics from any of your work, feel free to just jump in with whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny because being a sci-fi consultant can range so much in what you do and to what level of detail you get into, to how much small stuff you start to sweat <laughs> about. And uh, so sometimes I'll just have writers reach out to me and say, hey, in fact, I have one in my inbox right now that's just saying, you know, I'm working on this project. I'm trying to conceptualize something like Stargates. Can you give me a little bit more information on like how those work? And here's how I'm trying to do it. Does that make sense? And so, you know, just kind of a quick informational type discussion. But then sometimes I get, you know, I get handed storylines that they're just like, you have to science us out of this. <laughs> we backed ourselves into a corner and we love the story, but the science we're coming up to explain it makes no sense. So please help us. So it doesn't, because a lot of it is about keeping the viewers or the readers 
engaged, right? That yeah. If the science gets so ridiculous or it gets so wrong, uh, it'll just be pulled. It'll pull the you know viewer or reader out of the story. And so trying to make sure that you know even if it is on the more fiction side of science fiction that it's not using just techno babble nonsense, you know, (laughs) using saying quantum to just mean small or saying, you know, all these random things that that people do. And uh, so I I help a lot with that, just getting storylines kind of that that's usually the most of what I do. But then sometimes I even just get scripts and they just say, hey, read through these scripts. And can you tell us if we really missed the mark or something or just wordsmith it? And sometimes it can just be as much as changing galaxy to star system or even just, you know, changing a into to around the just because the science of it makes more sense to say it that way. So that's really the the small stuff. But I love doing that because I'm not creative enough to come up with these stories, but I'm creative enough as a sci fi fan to try to science it. And it's just a blast. I love doing it. Yeah. And that's. I, I must applaud you because as someone who has consumed plenty of Star Trek, Star Wars, even like I, I'm sure everyone in recent memory is familiar with Game of Thrones and how it's been having a bit of a tough time just because <laughs> writers um like plot elements yeah. were getting upset. But when you like when you go to science, do these things that like we're all taught from an early age, like this is how the universe is supposed to work. And then you tell me something that is drastically wrong. Like there's a certain amount of, of I guess, suspension of disbelief. I'm willing to accommodate, but when you really get into like, oh, suddenly this starship just gets to do a thing because <laughs> we need it to for this episode, you're like, that you've retconned an entire series on accident. <laughs> right. I mean, the most classic example of that, right, is the parsecs mm-hmm. <laughs> of the mm-hmm. Kessel Run, because let's be perfectly honest here. They're, they heard the term parsec. It sounded like a unit of time. They said 12 parsecs. And then they had to retcon it because parsec is an actual distance. Like, you can retcon it all you want. (laughs) But we know where the mistake was made. And it's fine. And now the current explanation is fine. I admire that they were willing to, like, do that. Like, I realize it was one of those things that, like, there was a big divide over, meh, it's it's Star Wars. It's just, like, a lot of things that happen in Star Wars aren't very science-y. So do we really need to get bogged down with this? But the fact that, like, they went out of their way to show you, like, this is the actual Kessel Run they were talking about. That, yeah. I, I guess it worked out in their favor. and It did, yeah, totally. And it's so funny because um, when we talk about things like the, the uh, Kessel Run or science in Star Wars, Star Wars is one of those that's so universal that I get asked to speak about it a lot. And that was kind of one of the first things that got me going down this path was when I was teaching Astronomy 101 and, you know, there's a lot when you're teaching astronomy 101 at a community college, most of your class is just getting a science credit. They're mm-hmm. not wanting to go be astronomers or astrophysicists. And I'm talking about exoplanets. And I was talking about um, one of the planets that the Kepler telescope had discovered around another star system. And I said, well, it's like Tatooine because <laughs> there's two suns around it. And like the whole class perked up and they were like, oh, but wait, like, so could it have desert on it? Like, how would that work? And, and they started thinking scientifically, even though it was about science fiction, they were questioning and they were trying to solve it. And, and that's where I just saw this opportunity where I would get to speak about science fiction all day and be able to use that to actually kind of grow science skills, which is awesome. Yeah, I think that's actually a very convenient segue into 
Uh, I'll just give a little setup. I actually had the opportunity to meet you at AwesomeCon. You were doing a panel on women in sci-fi, which was fantastic, not just because you had some of my favorite women in sci-fi, um, but yeah. also because you, there was, like, AwesomeCon was steeped in speakers who were talking about kind of the value of science and sci-fi and how we need to bring them together. Like, the the incredible importance of your work because the better the science in sci-fi is, the more people get interested in STEM. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I was hosting that panel was uh, an incredible experience for me. I was lucky enough a few months back to be on Mary McDonald's podcast. It's called the Lady Bam Podcast. And, um, and we had a great discussion that was kind of like the panel that we did. And so then I had this opportunity to moderate it with her. Uh, Gates McFadden and Danielle Panabaker. Mm -hmm. And it, you're right. Like it, it was a really good discussion because even though none of them were scientists, we started to talk about the impact of their work and not just how science fiction can inspire scientists or inspire scientific thinking, but that it, it has a little bit more license to push social boundaries and how seeing you know, Gates McFadden be a doctor and a mother and a single mother at that. Mm -hmm. And then like Mary McDonald being sort of put in a leadership position where she didn't personally feel ready for and, and that just how much of that actually impacts the world and impacts society. Yeah. And in addition to that, it's just the fact that like those character elements, those things that they were in a way they kept expressing how terrified they were, then they, those were the things I remember most about their characters, like Battlestar Galactica, seeing a woman president acting like that, is like, there's, she's just a president. She's not a woman yeah. president. She just happens to be a president who is a woman. Exactly. And then it wasn't, but it went beyond that. And the fact that like, you have a space doctor who's not supposed to just be talking about like normal medical issues that a person in the 20th or 21st century has to deal with. They're dealing with problems in the 25th century on a starship and all the new fun nuance that has to go on there. <laughs> and someone like you, someone has to really come along and say, if we just step back and really try to imagine the 25th century and living like the, the minutia of living on a starship, what are the things that you typically deal with as a doctor trying to take, basically keep a city in space healthy? Right. And still make it because the thing with science fiction is that the reason we're drawn to it is even though it takes place in, you know, to be honest, fantasy universes or star systems or anything else, it's allegorical and it's relatable to the situation that we're in in society. You know, that's why Star Trek did so well in the 60s is because it had direct correlations to the events that were going on around the Vietnam War and around, you know, the discussions about race. And and they had those parallels that draw people in and look at it from another perspective and then cause them to reflect on their own. And, and so then... When trying to compare that to like where science will be, you still have to find a way to tie it to some of the same issues that we have today. Um, and then that really comes down to people and personalities. And uh, it's interesting. I think um, a lot of science fiction does a really good job about that. Yeah. And building on that exact idea is how science itself is the anchoring point. Like it doesn't matter if you lived a million years ago, 5,000 years ago, or 3,000 years in the future. Physics is physics. And yeah. so it doesn't care what world you live in. The speed of light is always going to be the same. And so being able to keep that kind of relevant, I guess, through line mm -hmm. really helps like 
it might not be easy to understand what like humans interacting with these strange aliens would be like, but we all understand the common language of physics. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek was um, in Star Trek Voyager called Counterpoint. And it's where they're trying to, there's like micro wormholes or something mm-hmm. that are popping up and they're trying to figure out where they can predict where it's going to pop up next. And like, because Jane, Captain Janeway came from a scientific background, you can see in her eyes just the like, all right, challenge accepted. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm going to figure this out. That coffee and, and just, that nebula look. <laughs> exactly. And she's pounding coffee all night, just <laughs> trying to figure out these frequencies and this pattern. And, and that is so relatable because you're right. Like physics is physics and, and math is math and it's repeatable and there are patterns to it. And being a scientist means trying to find those things and answer those questions. And that's what we get excited about. Yeah. And again, the example you just gave is perfect because it speaks to the fact that you can care about something. You can be a leader on a starship and still have a great background passion in science. Like, all the great starship captains, like Picard, he has a interest in, I, I think it was like xenoanthropology. Mm-hmm. And Cisco yep. yep. um, had a background in, well, he had a, a few different backgrounds, but the point that all those different starship captains make, and the point kind of any rich sci-fi character makes is, you can have these many different interests, but at the end of the day, they they shouldn't just define you. You are many things. And then... That's kind of like where this sci-fi comes in is a lot of the women on the panel that you're hosting, they're speaking to how their characters are scientifically inclined or they're dealing with these crazy sci-fi issues, but they don't need to themselves be the scientist or expert. Yeah, yeah. And um, and that's really fun, too, because I, I get an opportunity sometimes to work with the actors themselves and to try to coach them through what they're talking about. So when I worked on Orbital Redux, there was a moment where the main character, uh, Yasmin Albatani, she had to do a, um, that's the actor's name, mm-hmm. um, she had to do uh, an equation. like. And so the, the quirky thing with Orbital Redux was that it was a live scripted sci-fi show. So it was streamed live. And so there were no do-overs. <laughs> and, and it was all filmed in like a sort of Apollo-esque type pod that, you know, is about the size that you can imagine of like the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. Like it was tiny and uh, maybe a little bit bigger because there was some space dancing involved. But (laughs) there were like, there were some problems that happened. And then she like on the fly had to calculate like how much fuel to expel in one direction so they could correct their trajectory. And so I, you know, that's, that's when I get the phone call. (laughs) And they're like, we need an equation and we got to figure this out and we have to make sure we say it right. And so I started digging into like some of these old equations that I remember from when I was in school. And, and I actually found one uh, that was the Tchaikovsky rocket equation and the ship on the show was called the Tchaikovsky. So it worked out brilliantly. And then, you know, it's one of those two where as a scientist, you want to make it perfect. You want to make it perfect, perfect, perfect. Um, when you enter the sci-fi realm, you have to let some of that go where it's like, I started to go down the rabbit hole of being like, okay, well, the Tchaikovsky rocket equation is pretty good, but it's not like if we needed an equation that would exactly solve this, like you would get a 80% solution with it. Um, and I had to just tell myself, 
that's okay. Cause this is three lines of variables and I don't want to have her like having to fill the entire side of the ship with an equation. Um, and, uh, and then having her, like I had to kind of physically write out the equation and say what every single variable was and then say like how to say the equation as you're writing it. And, um, and it was great. It was really fun. And she, she killed it. It was awesome. She was like, I'm going to have this equation memorized forever. <laughs> That's awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. And it's just, it's great to hear it when it works out like that, because so another, I guess, sci-fi show slash franchise slash near and dear to my heart piece of content was a uh, Futurama. And oh, yes, <laughs> that show is famous for having like its writing staff is basically half scientists. There's um the prisoner of Benda, which actually I did an episode before with my brother on where we we're talking about all the beautiful different ways that the writers had explored science in Futurama. And the genius of that one is the guy who actually created the uh, I guess it was the brain swapping equ equation you see written on the screen <laughs> yeah. at some point. It was an actual writer. That was his PhD dissertation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, they, uh, cause that, that theorem, when they wrote it out, I think had not like been published formally as like a scientific <laughs> theoretical theorem. And, and they created that in Futurama. And it's just, it's the coolest thing in the whole world. I also use uh, Futurama a lot for multiverse theory because they have the one with all the universes in boxes. Yeah. Um, and that it's just great. And it's the value of having scientists or mathematicians in the writer's rooms. And that's something I really push that they say, you know what, like, not only could we make this right, but we can, it's almost like Easter eggs, right? It's like being able to put Easter eggs in where anyone who knows is on top of it <laughs> and they love it. The Futurama quote that comes to mind is the, uh, when Bender runs into the advanced sentience that people think is God. And he just says, when you've done things right, people won't be sure you did anything at all. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's so absolutely true. Um, and it's funny because I found sometimes when I've been out here, reticence to having a science consultant for a show or for a book, because they feel that they don't need it because no one will know either way. Mm -hmm. Right. But the people who do know it really matters. And I think with the amount of content we have out there right now, that is a discriminator that makes them stand apart is if the, I mean, I, I use this comparison too, is the, the expanse, you know, the expanse is great, but I think it makes it almost 50% better that the science is so good in it. Yeah. And when you really look at it, what like 99% of all the content you see in a day is talking about the other 1% of the content you see in the day. So it's not <laughs> exactly. like there's any shortage of people who are going to complain about it. Yeah. I can appreciate how if I, like, if I came onto a science, like any kind of consultant, really, when you show up somewhere, there's always going to be that one person who isn't thinking this is good. This is going to help us do things better. They're thinking this person is going to stifle my creativity or just come up with reasons why I shouldn't be allowed to do this. And how do you, do you have like kind of a process to help you diffuse that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause I, and sometimes it's not just that they're, uh, hesitant to have anyone. It's that usually they've had a bad experience in the past, um, where they might've called a friend who was a scientist and that friend was like, well, that's dumb. Don't do that. And then they're like, Oh, now I feel bad. And <laughs> now like I still need to do it cause it's my story, but now I just feel bad about it. 
And uh, so when they've had bad experiences in the past, they really don't want to expose themselves to that again. But the way that I approach it and the way that um, I think I've been successful in it is that I am obviously a sci-fi fan. So that helps. I want, I am not going in there to change the story, to, to do that. That's not my job. That's not why I'm there. And the big thing for me really is that my job is to improv it. My job is to yes and the whole thing, right? Okay, that's what you want to do. Great, let's make it work. Like here's the cautions and warnings, you know, <laughs> caution, warning, and notes. But here's, you know, here's a solution. And this is the background that you need to know. So when I use this, my process is really like, just give me an example and, um, and I will put something together for you. And usually I will lay out some definitions. So if you're saying, you know, you want me to solution how to travel from, you know, Jupiter to, uh, Uranus in 30 seconds or something, I will say, okay, well, you know, here's, here's how like acceleration works. <laughs> here's the speed of light. Here's, and this is why we're going to use all these terms. And then I will kind of give you a couple of solutions. And then I give you a few lines of dialogue because I will do a lot of science background for it. That will usually be like three or four, or maybe a page worth of saying, here's the science fiction that we're building here. And then it's going to end up being one line of dialogue. <laughs> Uh, and it'll be right, but it'll be one line of dialogue. It's a lot of buildup. It's not always a lot of payoff, but it's definitely yeah. a lot of value. Yeah. And I think they, so they like the fact that um, I don't bring any negative energy to their story. I say, okay, you know, and sometimes they know there's the look on their face of like, man, good luck. <laughs> like, <laughs> we don't know how we're going to do this. And so if I'm able to help them at all, then they're sold. You know, that that's the big win. On that note, is there anything you'd like to plug about yourself or any upcoming events or anything? Um, yeah, just for people can come see me at uh, some various events that are coming up. I'm going to be speaking next month uh, at the AT&T Shape event in Hollywood with Gina Davis and Maya Bialik. We're going to be talking about the Scully effect. So the impact that um, Dana Scully has had on women in my generation to go into science for obvious reasons. That's why I'm on the panel. <laughs> and, um, and then I'm also going to be a guest at Star Trek Las Vegas. I'm bringing some really cool sci-fi uh, talks to science of Trek. And so I will be there. I will also be at Dragon Con. And then I have a few more conventions coming up that are yet to be announced. So uh, if people want to find out, uh, I'm mostly on Twitter at Dr. Aaron Mack, D-R Aaron Mack. And my website is AaronPMacDonald.com where you can find all of my events. Yeah, and it's it's a her work is phenomenal. I strongly recommend anyone who's interested in not just consulting, but just like getting that richer context for your sci-fi please do go check out her work. I've, I've loved everything I've seen so far, and I'm excited to see what you do next. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. As for us at Swing the Small Stuff, you can always find our stuff at Small Stuff Show on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can find our YouTube at bit.ly forward slash YouTube. And if you like our content and you want to support us so that we can keep finding awesome people like Aaron to interview, please consider uh, contributing to our Patreon, bit.ly forward slash Patreon. I've been your personal brain trainer, Cameron Buzard-Jamari, reminding you, from movies to media to the world around us, it's details like these that make it worth sweating the small stuff.
<laughs> no worries.